0: hello everyone it's october 8th 2019 so way out at the earth sun l1 lagrange point discover has been having some gyroscope issues but there's a fix and it's a software update no surprise there really radio waves are cheaper than rockets like a lot cheaper and off. <music> we've cleared the tower welcome to episode 231 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis so we're all three back again awesome yeah then you sound better at least you have a voice dennis so
1: (laughs) i do i'm just so happy for that to finally be behind me that was so annoying (laughs) mercifully i only teach three days a week so i had until that tuesday to get my voice back and even then i was only giving an exam so i really had till wednesday and I kind of struggled through my Wednesday class. And then finally, Thursday, I was feeling better. Mm-hmm. But yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we were getting a life start because we were talking about restaurants, because that's all we seem to care about when we go on our little trip to the IAC conference. But, well, uh, so. I mean,
2: we needed to plan a meetup, and we'll talk more about
1: that later. But,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not denying that I will sit and talk about restaurants uh,
1: ad nauseum. <laughs>
0: mm hmm.
1: But this was a good excuse to. Yeah.
0: yeah, any excuse to talk about food, right? But okay, I guess moving on then to this week in space flight history. What is that looking like? Do we have any
2: winners? All right, so we have three winners. Uh Jason Friesen, uh Thomas Formanek. Hi Thomas. Uh first time guesser, first time winner, yay. And then uh Chubby Turkosi, who is definitely not a first time guesser or first time mm-hmm. winner. So Chubby Turkosi and Thomas guessed correctly. Jason Friesen got the correct, got a correct guess, but he gets partial credit because he had the wrong explanation for the clue. Although a good explanation. Um, All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 9th of October 2000. It was the launch of HTET-2, and that was the first orbital launch from Kwajalein, um, which, uh, of course, is near and dear to our hearts. So the, the clue from last week was sometimes a good explosion is exactly what you need. And this week in spaceflight history is the 9th of October, 2000. It was the launch of HTET 2, which was uh, famous because, well, <laughs> famous. Famous in our world because it was the first orbital launch from Kwajalein Atoll. And of course, Kwajalein is uh, near and dear to these SpaceX fanboys' hearts. So let's mm-hmm. rewind a little bit. Back in November of 1996, HTET, the first, no no number, HTT was launched on board a Pegasus, and the Pegasus launch went perfectly. It achieved orbit, you know, achieved the orbit they wanted. But then when they tried to deploy HTT and SAC-B, which were a paired payload in like a dual launcher payload adapter, when they tried to deploy them, the explosive bolts uh, simply did not fire. turns out that one of the batteries cracked during uh, ascent. And so there was no charge to actually fire these, uh, these bolts. And so both of these, um, satellites, both, uh, uh, astronomical payloads failed to deploy and the whole thing was a bust. So fast forward, uh, what, uh, four years later, 96, 2000. Yeah. So mm-hmm. fast forward four years later and htet two was built and launched. So. That stands for the High Energy Transient Explorer, and um, it's a pretty basic looking satellite. If you were to take two half-meter cubes and stack them on top of each other, um, that's what it looks like. And then it has solar arrays that lay along the one-meter, the long sides, and then they're they're attached with hinges at the bottom, and so they deploy outward in sort of a cross-configuration. So HTET one and 2 had Japanese and French cooperation amongst other international partners. And the vehicle was the first multi-wavelength gamma-ray burst study. So not only was it looking at gamma-ray bursts, but it was doing it in UV, X-ray, and gamma-ray spectra. And it had this really cool ability. It could detect and locate GRBs with about a 10 arc-second accuracy. And it could do that detection with automated onboard systems, and it could relay those locations down to the ground within 10 seconds, which is really important because then ground-based equipment can do follow-up surveys and do more powerful uh, studies of the gamma ray burst. And as kind of an early warning system, it was hugely valuable. Oh, and not only was it a, a an early warning system, but it actually surveyed 60% of the sky every year. So we're talking about huge swaths of universe being examined for for grbs actually dennis do you know um do we detect grbs outside of our galaxy or is it can we only see them within the milky
1: way i'm pretty sure they have an isotropic distribution which means that they are extragalactic.
2: oh they're only extragalactic.
1: well yeah yeah so that's that's how you can tell is when yeah when you see them on the sky they're kind of everywhere right
2: so and not just in the ecliptic mm-hmm.
1: and in fact yeah i'm As I think about it now, we definitely haven't had a GRB in our own galaxy because we haven't had even a supernova go off in our own galaxy for half a millennium. So,
2: okay, yeah, and and if we saw a GRB in our galaxy, like if
1: we could see it, we would probably be hurting, right? If it was close enough to us, yeah, but but not necessarily like that. Yeah, they talk about that as a doomsday scenario, but there definitely could be ones that are farther enough that the collimation, because right, the jet. Would be the dangerous mm-hmm. thing, and it could ablate our atmosphere. But I think that's ones that are like within the maybe a couple hundred light years of yeah, us. Yeah,
2: because if you if you had GRBs that took out, you know, an eighth of a of a galaxy <laughs> and, and <laughs> exactly, wiped <right>? an eighth
1: <laughs> of the life that that. We probably wouldn't be here. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just envisioning a smoldering beam across <laughs> these kind of like a swath cutting across these galaxies. Yeah. Now, every time a GRB goes off.
2: And, yeah. and so, if you've forgotten what a gamma ray burst is, it's basically right, right just a supernova.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a it's a. It's a high mass supernova where the jet happens to be kind of aimed towards us. Yeah. But there, there's actually a couple different classes of them, too. There's short ones and like short longer ones. Short and hard ones, and long and as soft far as their duration and, goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's the essential thing. They have to do with collapsing stars and jets uh, getting blasted towards and, us. And
2: months. some of these things last for under 10 seconds. So. Um, being able to relay their location within 10 seconds is really important. Um, There were actually a number of GRBs that were spotted by htet 2 where it actually let the ground know that there was a GRB to go check out while it was still happening, which is crazy. So uh, this vehicle was planned to operate for 18 months, but it actually lasted until March 2008. So eight, well, like seven and a half years, pretty pretty cool. And um, the list of discoveries that are connected with uh, HTEt2 are very very long and require uh, more than a passing understanding of what a gamma ray burst is, which I don't have. So I don't I don't understand most of them. But I know the the one that I was able to to really comprehend was there was a, a relatively close GRB that uh, had the output needed to solidly connect GRBs to supernovas. They were able to observe it. In other wavelengths fast enough, um, thanks to hdet 2 to solidly say, yes, that, you know, it's not just a theory. Now we have data to backup that this is actually a supernova. Nice. Yeah, really cool. So that's this week in spaceflight history. So it looks
0: like for the clue for next week, we're going to have an audio clue.
1: All
2: right. So next week in 1956, here's the clue.
1: Phase distortion is dropping. The next transport window opens in 42 seconds.
0: So awesome clue. So that's next week in 1956. That's not from 1956, obviously, but uh, this clue is in reference to something that happened in 1956. All right. And if you know what that might be about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck.
2: Yeah, good luck, everybody. (laughs)
0: have a plan in place to fix discover and I don't know how much we've talked about did we talk about it in a short and sweet
2: yeah it w- it was a short and sweet and basically we said it's it's in a safe mode and we don't we don't know what's going on
1: and basically compared to previous ones that were you know only hours at a time this was one that was yeah. for i think weeks at that point so they knew it was a little more serious than usual um
2: and it's funny because uh even though discover is not currently operating photos from discover continue to pervade reddit like it's one of the most mm-hmm. reposted images is are discover images and especially discover images with the moon in the shot so yeah it just looks cool
1: it's yeah, as far as like I mean, big picture, all yeah. the images that we get from like yeah. it's just incredible. They're no, they're the best photos.
2: And it kind mm-hmm. of pisses me off that it took us this long to put something uh in L L two or L one? L one. L one, yeah. I mean, like it it's so great.
1: So Noah released a report, I guess just uh, a week ago, uh, that talked about uh an earlier performance issue was the only was as close as they ever gave to a reason why. But I did find this tweet by Simon Karn, and I can just read the tweet to you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Update from the recent Discover Science Team meeting at NASA Goddard is that they hope to restore EPIC, uh, Dennis, note, EPIC is the camera, uh, by January 2020. Need to implement star tracking software to replace faulty gyro so the spacecraft can orient itself and point accurately at Earth. So... Yeah. Maybe this is yet another bad wheel. This is kind of a little more speculation, but this is a spacecraft that has been in the works for decades, even though it only launched a couple of years ago. And so this could be back when all that company was basically putting bad reaction control wheels Mm -hmm. on everything yeah
2: the the only thing though is if it's if it's a control gyro and not like a sensor gyro then why would star tracking software help
1: so then i guess maybe that you know speculation about the wheels being bad is poor speculation which certainly wouldn't be you know first time i've done that (laughs) and maybe it really is just a matter of uh, orientation so
2: so other spacecraft have have used their gyros as as like accelerometers like they actually use them to determine orientation so i wonder if that's what's going on i can't find anything specifically about
1: discover doing that but discovers documentation was pretty hard to find yeah and i think again that's part of the fact that it's been leon running man says in the chat it's yeah Exactly. It's, this was first proposed in 98. It was essentially canceled, put in storage, and then kind of taken out of storage and resurrected yeah. seven, eight years ago or something like that. Maybe even 10 years. I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is, it's got a long, complicated history. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the documentation, therefore, I think is a little messy.
0: So I guess... It's just for determining the orientation.
1: I don't know, maybe something about being in the L1?
0: It needs station keeping there, but that would be with the reaction control system.
1: Yeah, David, I was thinking more in terms of like like gravitational perturbations on the craft, being at L1, and then you could somehow use that to always know what the Earth's sun line is. And that, you know, might make orienting Mm. yourself a little easier. You have less axes to deal with.
0: It's just terminology, right? Because that's kind of what always confuses me is that, like, when you use certain terms, what does that mean? So, like, if you say reaction wheel, are are we talking about something that's used to orient the spacecraft and not something that's used for, you know, inertial measurement?
2: Okay, so Leon in the chat had a really good point that um, Discover was originally called Triana, not Discover. So I did another search and actually came up with a paper that is talking about Triana's uh, safe hold behaviors. And in particular, they were concerned about um, being able to do attitude control without the laser gyros on board. And so the the gyro failure seems to be roughly in line with with this paper that they were thinking of, or, or this uh, what they were thinking of in this paper. So I, I put a link in the show notes. Um, but basically, um, they were talking about being able to do a uh, in place of using gyroscope rate measurements, they wanted to use uh, wheel tachometers, you know, for the the momentum wheels to do what they call a scaled estimation of the spacecraft body rate uh, around the sun vector. And then they were also talking about being able to use the the sun sensors to be able to. Um, hold attitude in in three directions and not just one direction in a rotation. And so, uh, specifically, this paper points out that on board they have four reaction wheels, ten thrusters, six coarse sun sensors, one star tracker, and a three-axis IMU that uses laser gyros. Okay. So that's that. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on here. Is that one of their laser gyros has failed, mm-hmm. and so they're trying to instead of use their coarse sun sensors to do uh, or the core sound sensors and the tachometers to do orientation or uh, attitude control. They're trying to use the star trackers in a, or the star tracker singular in a more tightly controlled way with new software. Yep. That makes Good sense. Catch yeah, cause,
1: ben, yeah. Isn't
2: that cool? Oh no. Th- thanks to Leon for reminding me. Cause I, I was just looking the at name. how. Yeah. Well, discover is known by three names. Um, uh, Triana discover and also Gorsat, uh, but that's kind of informal um mm-hmm. but if you want to look at at history of the spacecraft you got to look for triana documents
0: yeah mm-hmm. okay that makes sense yeah because i, I just wasn't clear on, on the terms because sometimes the terms are used interchangeably because uh-huh. just like gyro and like you yeah. know that could mean either one and that's kind of confusing when you say gyro because what does yeah. that mean
1: mm-hmm. yep well, you see it confused me big time <laughs> <laughs> and i'm glad and this right this is all outside of the uh actual space news reporting so i'm kind of glad yeah. we were able to dig into this
2: yeah exactly that's what's fun about this show
1: yeah you just read that article you kind of got big question marks yeah yeah
2: so
0: a laser gyroscope uh we talked about this with i believe a guest at one point doesn't that use like, like i forget how they work but it has something to do with like you need to have an understanding of general relativity right like isn't how <laughs> for these laser these gyros yeah. yeah
2: yeah the absolute speed limit of light yep mm-hmm.
0: Right, which to me is extraordinary how that could even work because we're talking about very slow movements and yet you can use something that something like the speed of light.
2: Yeah, you ha- yeah you have to get into the phase of the light to be able to measure those differences. Yeah, like it's not it's time of flight, but you're not measuring the time of flight; you're measuring the phase difference. Yeah, and we talked about this in the uh, the GNC uh, data relay, and it still is mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so before we wrap this segment up, um, Dennis had a really cool factoid about. Uh, discovers position in the solar system.
1: Sure, yeah, I think it's it's very fun that um, uh, from Discover's perspective at L1, uh, the Earth's angular size is about half a degree in diameter, which is about the same angular size as a full moon. So you can try to just visualize, you know, we know what a full moon looks like in this night sky. So just visualize the earth like that. And that's essentially what Discover's looking at. <laughs> yeah. that's So cool.
0: But from the photos we've seen, the full moon is even smaller still. So obviously the full moon takes up, I don't know what, but.
1: Yeah. Cause, cause yeah. So the, I guess the L1 is far, I mean, the L1 is farther from the earth moon system than the moon is from the surface of the earth. Yeah. Looking at it.
2: Yeah. Cause otherwise the moon would be bigger when it was nearer to L1 than the earth. And right, it's, yeah. it's still like half the size of Earth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's do short and sweet. And you got our first one, Dennis. And what is that about?
1: First up, NASA Mars 2020 test descent stage separation. Engineers at JPL have completed a successful separation test, firing the pyrotechnic devices holding the Mars 2020 rover and its descent stage together. The two will now undergo separate testing until their reintegration at the Cape next spring. The rover will now face the surface thermal test where its computers and mechanical systems are subjected to Mars-like atmospheric conditions before being shipped to the Cape this winter. And don't forget, the name the Mars 2020 Rover Essay Contest is still open to K-12 through students throughout the country, so get those entries in before November 1st.
2: Next up, NASA issues requests for information on the XEMU. NASA is now seeking input from the industry on the development of its next-generation extravehicular mobility unit, known as XEMU. The upgraded suit was conceived for future lunar landing missions. The request for information is specifically aimed at improving suit manufacturing techniques, as well as any advice from industry on potential improvements to the current axiom design, with a focus on addressing dust, thermal conditions, mobility under gravity, and flexibility for driving rovers and collecting lunar samples. Once the suit has passed its critical design review, NASA hopes to begin manufacturing by the late 2020s. Real quick, I know I I hate when we ramble at the end of these things, but EMU stands for Extravehicular Mobility Unit, and XEMU stands for...
0: I don't know. Yeah.
2: It's really bad. Hang on. Hang on. Let me find it. XEMU, get this, stands for Advanced Extravehicular Activity Spacesuit. (laughs) <laughs> is there an is there a mobility no, in there? No, there's no M. There's no X. Advanced, and there's a letter before the X from extravehicular. So it should be the AXAS, the axis. Well, oh, but instead of cool. calling it axis, yeah. they're calling it XEMU.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope some of the input from the industry has uh, changed the name.
2: <laughs> yeah, for the love of Pete. Come on, folks. Okay, okay, Dennis or David, you need to go or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get yeah, mad here.
1: But that's a good point.
0: I think the AXIS sounds way cooler than XEMU, so why not just go with that? It's, it makes perfect sense to me. Okay, anyway. Yes. Yeah, so lastly, New Shepard will likely not fly humans in 2019. So Blue Origin Chief Executive Bob Smith said it was unlikely that New Shepard would carry passengers this year as there are only a few months left but several test flights remaining that must be carried out before flying humans aboard. According to Bob Smith, if the tests go well, there's a good chance of flying passengers relatively soon. If, however, any safety concerns arise, then human flights will be delayed until these concerns have been addressed. The next flight of New Shepard will take place no earlier than November 1st.
2: Okay, stand
1: by it. We're looking
0: at it. questions comments and correction burns and we have just uh, an update for all of our listeners on what exactly we'll be doing at the IAC coming up in just a few weeks crazy as that sounds
2: yeah it's it's coming up super fast so uh, of course um, if you're in town the weekend before uh, events.offnominal.space uh, is where to find off nominals meetups. We're going to be going to both of them. Um, and we've talked about this uh, before, but just a quick recap. Um, we're going to be at the Udvar Center at 10 a.m. on Saturday the 20th. And then uh, DACA Beer Garden downtown in Washington, D.C. at 7 p.m. on the 20th. And then David's not going to be there for either one of those, most likely. He's getting in pretty late on Sunday. Um, So what we're going to do is we looked at the events at IAC and we decided the day that we're most happy missing, (laughs) there's no good Mm -hmm. day to miss. We decided that we're going to make Monday our museum day. So we're going to go back to Uvarhazi in the morning, and then we're going to be going to the Air and Space Museum downtown. Um, We don't have exact time, so what you want to do is go on Twitter and follow the hashtag TomIAC2019, so T-O-M-I-A-C-2019. That's where we will post detailed plans because we're going to be a little loosey-goosey just because we're not 100% sure how travel is all going to work out. We're going to hit those two on Monday, and then we're going to try to uh, hit the technical sessions uh, Monday afternoon, if possible, because those don't start, I think, until 3 p.m. Tuesday, uh, what you need to be aware of is the Excellence Award is being awarded to Jeff Bezos on behalf of uh, Blue Origin. It's it's notable. I don't know if we're going to be able to even make it into the auditorium because we're going to be in uh, sessions before that. And I think to be able to get into this auditorium, you're going to need to go before like well ahead of time uh so we'll see thursday we're going to do a dinner meetup for our listeners um we'll see if the off nominal folks yeah uh exactly the chat says uh those types of events are usually the worst to be at and there's no technical information that's the really fun part right worth mentioning anyway uh thursday we're going to do a dinner meetup uh, for our listeners hopefully we can drag the off nominal folks uh along with us as well. Um, But we're going to be going to McGinty's Pub in Silver Silver Spring. Um, It's just off the red line. And we're going to be doing that around dinner time. I mean, we're going to have to see what travel looks like. Uh, Again, Tom IAC 2019. Um, And then uh, Friday is a big day because you don't have to have a ticket to get into IAC. So if you're in the area, you want to go listen to some technical talks. You don't want to pay hundreds of dollars. Friday's the day to do it, and we'll be there all day Friday. And I think as we are attending attending sessions, we'll be tweeting uh, from orbital podcast, twitter.com slash orbital podcast using the Tom IAC hashtag. And so if you want to join us or meet us in a hallway somewhere, Uh, use that hashtag, let us know. I think all three of us are going to be tweeting all day or all all week long, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, Dan says, try not to miss the opening ceremony, which is on Monday, which was the day that we had planned on going to museums. And he says, last year they had a call in from the ISS during the opening, uh, which is really cool. So Hmm. now I'm... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> double guessing uh okay well maybe maybe we'll have to push museum day to tuesday then yeah
0: so i guess the opening ceremony is always kept a secret so like we're not gonna know until then
1: yeah that's a gamble
2: anyway so that's uh that's our thoroughly tenuous plans for iac in just like two weeks
1: oh man
0: yep okay let's now move on to upcoming spaceflight events we got uh four events three launches yeah in one spacewalk. And I'm yeah. surprised that we just have one coming up over the next week because there's like 10 of them.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> in the docket,
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they'll, they'll be coming hot and heavy. Um, So our first launch is a Proton M with a Breeze M upper stage flying EU Telsat 5 West B and MEV-1. So we all know what EU Telsat is. And then uh, MEV-1 is Mission Extension Vehicle 1, and it's going to be like a refueling vehicle, which is... <laughs> insane i think we've talked about this at least once in the past but like holy cow yeah. like we're we're finally getting to do this with an operational satellite uh in geostationary orbit so it's crazy um very cool so uh that proton is flying on october 9th 2019 at 10 17 utc uh, and i believe it's an instantaneous launch window awesome
1: Uh, And then the next day or later that day, depending on where you are, there will be a Pegasus XL taking the long-delayed Ionospheric Connection Explorer icon and uh, launching it horizontally. And so (laughs) this will be (laughs) uh, on October 10th at uh, 0125 ETC with a window from 0125 to 0255. They don't really show these really so
2: yeah it's, there've been a couple there've been like one or two launches with live footage but
1: yeah so i mean you just you know you could be aware and this uh may be the final uh pegasus launch at least that's from what i understand the plan
0: yeah and finally we have on october 14th an electron launch and the name of that mission is "As the Crow Flies," uh, which another great name. So that's launching Landmapper BC, the or the uh, the Landmapper BC satellite, and this is a multispectral imaging system, and it gets resolution down to 22 meters per pixel. So that's just like a, I guess, a very nice. Actually, I don't know if 22 meters per pixel is good. Sounds like it though, right? Like that's high resolution for. Yeah,
1: depends depends on what you're doing for imaging. Yeah, if you want to watch, you know, if you want to see an Iranian launch pad. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you need to do better than that. But if you want to just kind of check, you know, vegetation patterns over some part of the earth or something then.
0: So I guess 22 meters per pixel is not the best like you, you can get it down to like 5 meters per pixel or something. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, anyway, so the satellite is the Land Mapper BC, but it runs on a Corvus platform and Corvus is Latin for crow, so as the crow flies. Yeah, there's there's the <laughs> connection there. The launch window for that on October 14th is 2300 UTC through 0300 UTC. So that's a four-hour launch window, and that's launching from Rocket Lab's Launch Complex 1, and that's off the, what, the Bahia Peninsula. So, of course, I'm sure we can watch that on YouTube or wherever. And uh, if you happen to live in New Zealand, I guess check that out. That would be very cool. Mm. I would like to see that one day just because I want to go to New Zealand.
1: I was going to say you'll... See them launch. You could potentially see them from Launch Complex Two someday. Yeah, <laughs> you have yeah, family true. In Virginia? Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. It's true, but I, I want to go to New Zealand, so I don't, I don't really. Ah, uh, but yeah, I don't <laughs> New Zealand's kind of a
1: little, little cooler vacation than uh, Virginia. <laughs> yeah.
2: And then finally, uh, we are going to have a spacewalk today, Sunday, as we're recording this, but. Uh, we didn't have uh, enough lead time to let you know that last week, so um, we're going to be seeing spacewalk 57 on Friday, October the 11th. Um, so we're skipping over 56 <laughs> and jumping straight <laughs> to 57. Um, and uh, this is the first, or th- this is the second, of a long series of of about 10 EVAs to do a bunch of work. Right now, they're doing, I believe, four EVAs to install new batteries on the P6 truss. Um, And then after that, um, they will do further EVAs to repair uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer is is that the name of the experiment?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. That's yeah, yeah. That, that's the one that they're repairing.
2: Yeah, and so that that's going to be really fascinating because it takes highly specialized knowledge, and also Luca Parmitano is going to be working on that. Uh, actually, I think Parmitano is going to be working on the last of the battery spacewalks as well. But this is going to be a super busy time on the station for spacewalks. So we're gonna we're gonna try to hit you with every single one. So uh, October eleventh, Friday, coverage starts at six a.m. Eastern time, the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7.50 a.m. Eastern time. And then a heads up, right after our next show comes out on October 16th, which is a Wednesday, uh, there's going to be another one, same uh, same times for that. And there you go. Do tune in on NASA TV because these guys are great to leave in the background.
0: Yeah, so we're watching it right now. And uh, it's very, like, they're, they're not getting very good telemetry or they're not getting a good downlink there because it's very pixelated. Like, a,
1: Looks like a found footage horror film. Yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) They're
0: on the night side at the moment.
2: Yeah, it comes and goes, but I can't wait until we have a um, Blair Witch Project in space movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, Apollo 18. I think I see that. That's that's kind of (laughs) what that was.
0: I, I didn't see it, but that's what it looked like.
2: I ain't missing much. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Let's now deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We
1: record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to
2: support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources
0: for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies
1: you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com.
0: And that's it. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye,
2: everybody. See See you.